Hello, everybody, and welcome. You're listening to SFF Addicts, a bi-weekly panel podcast featuring authors, publishing professionals, and more, where we come together to chat about science fiction and fantasy, as well as the occasional jaunt into the wider SFF industry. I'm your host, Adrian M. Gibson, and today's episode is my interview with author Sam J. Miller. Sam is the award-winning author of Blackfish City, The Blade Between, and more, and he just had a double whammy of new releases with the short story collection Beast, Boys, and Men, and the novella Kid Wolf and Kraken Boy. I had a great time getting to know Sam better, exploring his personal history with SFF, and how that developed into him becoming one of the more powerful voices in the modern writing space. We also talk quite a lot about tattoos, and as a former tattoo artist, this made me a very, very happy camper. If you have any feedback about this interview, questions, comments, and the like, send me an email at sffaddictspod at gmail.com, or hit me up on Twitter at sffaddictspod, or at Adrian M. Gibson. And don't forget to rate and review SFF Addicts on your favorite podcast app, as well as subscribe to the Fanfiatic YouTube channel, where this and every other author chat is available in full video. All right, now on to my interview with Sam J. Miller. Here we go. All right, welcome everybody to another author chat here on the podcast. And today I have the pleasure of chatting with Sam J. Miller. It's really good to see him again. And he is the award-winning author of Blackfish City, The Blade Between, The Art of Starving, and more. And his short stories have won and been nominated for numerous awards, have been reprinted in dozens of anthologies. And Sam is also the, long la- the last in a long line of butchers currently residing in New York City. And his latest releases are the short story collection Boys, Beasts, and Men and the novella uh, Kid Wolf and Kraken Boy, with which both released recently. So welcome back. How are you doing, Sam? And congrats on the releases of those. I'm well, Adrian. Thank you for having me. It's really good to be back. And I'm doing, I'm doing well. It's, it's very weird to have essentially two books drop in one month, um, which is a good problem to have as a writer. Um, oh yeah. no, too much, too much good stuff to talk about. They will hate me on Twitter. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a wonderful, it's a weird and wonderful moment. Yeah. But I'm sure you're happy to, to get on Twitter and just bombard people with your stuff. I mean, I don't have a problem with it. If, if somebody else does, yeah. they can, they can unfollow me. I won't, exactly. I won't take it personally. Um, yeah, or at, no, least, it's, at least mute. It's, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. And uh, tell me more about your recent uh, West Coast tour for Boys, Beasts, and Men. Yeah, so I was really lucky uh, to be able to travel um, from, I did Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Diego, um, all of which are cities I love, even if I also hate them a little bit, like maybe LA. Um, <laughs> but uh, to, be, to be out on the road, to be traveling again, um, which I haven't done since 2017, um, was really special. And, and it was great to like meet people and see people again and see friends and like have like mm-hmm. down complete downtime disconnected from my life to like take a three hour bike ride through San Francisco's empty, abandoned Beautiful. night streets. Um, it was great. It was, it was a really, really good time. That sounds fantastic. And I imagine like, um, 
you know, being able to sort of reconnect with readers in a way that you haven't been able to in a long time, just to see them face to face, just because of after everything that's happened with COVID and, and all that, it's good to just see people in the flesh and, and be able to like sign a book and say hi and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, it, it definitely did. And, and I, I also, I was talking to an artist friend of mine who does, who's a musician um, and we were reflecting and, and, and he helped me to realize that like, there's a part of me and I don't, you know, one, one is loath to, uh, to say this or to accept this, but there's a part of me that likes the attention of a crowd of, yeah. of, a, of a room full of people and having been disconnected from that for, for a long time because there were no public events uh, because of COVID. Um, uh, I hadn't realized how much I was missing it. So being able to do events again and to be able to, to get that kind of like weird crowd energy uh, is, was pretty great. It's also weird because it's strange times. Book, book events have never been like massively popular <laughs> events. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, I did some, I did some events where it was the first time since, since March of 2020 that a venue had had a, an event or that a literary series had oh, had wow. an event. Um, so in many places mm-hmm. it was like, you know, the crowds were not always, sometimes they were packed, but sometimes they were pretty empty because people are just not in the habit anymore, um, yeah. of going to book events. So it was a little, it was a little weird, but, um, but exciting. And, you know, I try yeah. very hard not to peg my self-esteem to my, to the popularity of my work. So I don't, I don't look at sales numbers, uh, for example. And so I don't, I, I don't, I always want to pack the house, but if I don't, I try hard not to like take it personally. Yeah. And at least your ego got a little bit satiated over the course of your trip. So that's okay. <laughs> exactly. Oh, man. And before we get into things a little bit deeper, I like to uh, ask this question just to kick things off, give vi- listeners and viewers a bit more um, knowledge about you and your history. But what was it like for you growing up and reading and with SFF and that kind of stuff? Yeah, I, um, I've always been unhappy <laughs> i was always i was always uh you know the kind of kid who who was not popular and did not have a ton of friends um and who didn't really like fit in with the people at school and didn't didn't care about like top gun um or whatever the big movies were when i was a little kid i mean you grew up in hudson man so yeah yeah (laughs) yeah so uh uh you know i i books were always my safe place i love to read i i i was Mm -hmm. always able to like get the stimulation and the imagination that I needed that I couldn't find from the people around me, um, in books. So, and, and, and science fiction and fantasy and horror always felt really real to me in a way that like other books don't, um, which is weird because they're not real. Um, uh, so, so yeah, science fiction has always been a thing, um, that I think a lot about that. I love that. I read a lot of, uh, my mom is a great writer. Um, she doesn't write science fiction, but she taught me how to like submit stories to magazines when I was twelve. I, I was submitting oh, cool. from the magazine to the to the magazine of fantasy and science fiction from the age of twelve until forty. I finally cool. sold my first story there. Um, so yeah, it's always been a part of my life. It's always been something I value, um, a safe place, uh, uh, an escape, a, a place where like um, the, my my oversized feelings about the world feel like they finally have space to. To, to grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I, I feel the same way. It's always been that kind of, um, 
that imaginary zone that you can go to to just kind of escape from the bullshit of reality and you know empathize with people that that it might be a little bit more difficult to empathize with people that are picking on you or bullying you or that you don't connect with or you feel a little bit estranged from or what have you you can just kind of dive into a fantastical science fiction or fantasy world and just be like ah oh, these characters feel like people I want to put myself in the shoes of people that I want to be and that kind of thing. Yeah. Or when there are terrible people who we hate that we'll probably watch them die <laughs> or, or otherwise be made to suffer for their and be satisfied um, by that. jerkishness. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm thinking of Eustace in, uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's just like, you're a bit <laughs> of a dick. Don't eat those Turkish delights, right. man. <laughs> right. But if you do, it'll be, funny. I won't put it against you. Yeah. And for you, you know, um, just because of your sexuality and everything like that, did you find that that fantasy and science fiction were places where you could uh, express yourself a little bit more truthfully? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think it took me a long time. I was I was I, I knew I was gay from the age of 18. I mean, I knew before then, but I wasn't out to anyone until I was 18. Um, and, and so I do think that like, there's like when you're a writer, when you're, when you're a creative artist, right. It's, it can be a struggle to be your true full self in your work, especially if you're from like a, a marginalized community or, or, um, if you're a woman, um, or, you know, whatever, like if you if you're anything that's sort of like outside the norm of who historically has been centered in classical storytelling, um, it, mm -hmm. it's hard to 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 understand that those parts of yourself that aren't that are valuable and that people want to read them and connect with them. So I think that even while I definitely was finding a lot of like freedom and liberation in science fiction um, for many aspects of my personality, like the part of me that um, you know likes to think that he's kind of smart <laughs> or, you know, mm -hmm. the part of myself that's like, um, you know, wants to fight people, <laughs> um, uh, which in my real life, I don't. Um, but, but, uh, so, 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 exactly. <laughs> um, but, but, but other pieces of myself, it took me a long time to sort of figure out where they fit into science fiction and fantasy and horror. Um, and, and I think that just has to do a lot with a lot of things that are personal and like my own growth journey, but also like, publishing's growth journey and the character arc mm. of narrative storytelling in yeah. um in the 21st century right so um like how welcoming how unwelcoming many spaces were previously to unconventional narrators and folks from marginalized communities and how how that's changing now and how there's still resistance to it but you know it's it's much more possible i, th I feel like a lot of writers who 30 years ago might have felt like Oh, I'm not. It's not safe for me to write the kind of stories that I most want to write. Are are now feeling right. like I can write those. Um, I can write those stories and and feel feel good about the chances of them finding an audience. Mm -hmm, totally. And for you, you know, you mentioned that you were with your mom's help publishing stories at the age of twelve. And and oh no, I didn't say publishing stories. Journey? I, I didn't say publishing stories. Submitting I said submitting stories. stories. <laughs> I, I didn't. I didn't sell a story until I was eighteen to like a regional, like mm -hmm. a small press regional anthology of local, of like mm -hmm. Catskill Mountain region writers uh, upstate. Um, and then I didn't sell another one to, to a literary magazine until I was like twenty, and 
yeah so it was it was like slow slow going um but that's but you had an early start at least yes exactly yeah. yes <laughs> and how did that how did that whole journey start start to develop more it's like you're 18 you get your first published story and then how do things progress from there i know you attended clarion at some point as well so what was that that process like yeah i mean i i i went to uh after I graduated, I went to college at Rutgers in New Jersey, and then I moved to New York City. And I was always writing, and I was always submitting, and I was always, like, publishing stories, like, you know, very small things in very small places, like a zine that would fold immediately after they published my story, or a mm-hmm. website that would, like, publish my, accept my story and then vanish from the face of the earth. Um, and then some other, It's not like, your fault, you Sam, know, <laughs> No, exactly. I'm totally not the kiss of death. Um, but then like other places that would like get and thought stories that would get anthologized. And so I feel like I was making like very slow, but steady progress in terms of like getting my name out mm-hmm. there, getting, getting better as a writer and being able to connect with people. Um, but it wasn't, I was, I was 33 when I went to Clarion. I, it was a long time. It was, it was a long time oh, wow. of like being an adult writer out in the world. I wrote six novels. Nobody wanted. Uh, I wrote a ton of stories that didn't sell. And so yeah, it, it, it I really had to sort of like really come up against like how um, how far I had to go. Like you know, you you want to th- one wants to think one is hot shit. One wants to feel like you're really good. Um, <laughs> and sometimes one is right, but that doesn't mean that one doesn't have a long way to go in terms of like learning. So uh, I had to really sort exactly. of come up against my own limitations and be like, oh, you actually do need to like. You know, it was always a point of pride for me that I hadn't, I didn't have an MFA and I didn't um, take any college classes on creative writing. Um, uh, and so it took me a long time to be like, oh, no, it actually is not a bad thing to, like, study writing, <laughs> like, to learn yeah. how to be a writer, to learn, to learn how to get better and to just have that experience of, like, collaborating with and getting critiqued from lots of different writers who are really different mm. from you and can give you uh, a really interesting perspective on your own strengths and weaknesses. So, yeah, I totally credit Clarion as like the game changer for me of like what made the difference between like, you know, the six, the six novels I wrote and failed to sell before 2012 and the four novels and a short story collection and the novella that I've published since 2012. Yeah. And I mean, what was your, I I completely agree. That's like, you should never, should never feel like at any point you put aside the books, put a stop learning, put a stop to workshops or you know, any kind of, uh, situation that can help you improve your craft. And I think writers are kind of those people where it's like, for the most part, unless like you say, you think you're hot shit and whatever, most people need a bouncing board to be like, okay, I'm not the hottest shit. So there's still more right. for me to learn. And then you can keep applying totally. that to your work. But what was your biggest takeaway from, from Clarion? And then how do you feel that helped you, uh, transition into this stage of, you know, art of starving, blackfish city, lay between, et cetera. Um, to me, I think the real takeaway, the real, like, there were so many insights and and things that I learned, but I think the real takeaway that I got at Clarion, um, is that community is a superpower, which is ironic because at that point I had Mm. been a community organizer for my day job for almost 10 years. Um, so, so, uh, I knew that community was important, um, but it wasn't until Clarion that I realized how vital it is to the creative process. Um, instead, like, yes, community is important. You need to exist in community to like make social change happen, but also you're a better writer when you are 
like actively involved in community and learning from people and getting critiques for your stories um, and, and things like that. So yes, many mm. little lessons, many moments um, uh, of things that, that Clarion gave me. But the, the big thing was like, you're stronger together. You need a team, you need people. Um, and that isn't just true for the mm. six weeks of Clarion. It's true when you go out into the world and you like are like going to cons and making friends and um, connecting with people and, you know, getting introduced to people um, and really like sort of building up that network, especially for, you know, folks from marginalized backgrounds who have sort of historically had to like do their own thing because the, the club, the club wasn't having yep. them. Um, so, so yeah, like being able to like meet cool, you know, BIPOC and queer and women writers and like, you know, bigging each other up and, you know, praising each other's work and, 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 and shouting them out on Twitter and lifting them up and, 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 and sort of getting that, that kind of community vibe, not only to like help your writing, but also to help your, 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 your ability to like be a creative person in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And, you know, it's kind of that old adage of a rising tide rise, uh, raises all boats. And it's like, if everyone in the community is supporting each other, uh, you know, this book is amazing. You know, I, um, you know, write a, write a quote for your, for the cover of your book or, you know, share it on Twitter, all that kind of stuff. All of that helps so much for these, these writers who is like, yeah, the fucking insiders club who is kind of like, yeah, controlling the game in their own sense of whatever that was for such a long time. And now it's like, no, your bubbles burst and, and there's the room for all these different people to form new communities and those communities to intersect and for everyone to have an opportunity to get the word out there and just let people pick and choose the books that they want to read and let authors have more flexibility in who their audiences are. Yeah. Totally. And then reading your own work, I think for me, it's like reading, <laughs> you mentioned earlier about just like wanting to fight, even if it's internal, <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of, uh, you know, call to action, protest, uh, social commentary in your work. Uh, you know, reflections on on the world that you see around. Would you say this is true? And and if so, it's like what is what does writing fiction allow you to do uh, in terms of um, viewing what's going on out there in the world, and then figuring out your own way of of critiquing it or commenting on it, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, part of it is just like therapy in the sense of it is really. <laughs> miserable out there and you know you look at the news every day and you read the paper and you hear just like each new day a, a fresh host of atrocities and horrible developments and so mm. i um i feel like i've come to the place which again ironically for a community organizer who's supposed to believe that change is possible and things can be fixed like i've just come to a place of like i don't actually think justice is a thing that exists in the real world i think it's like a narrative fiction um that we we construct to make ourselves mm. feel better of like you know what's the narratively satisfying conclusion to like i don't know um uh an evil president who does all sorts of terrible things um and then you know retires and gets to live the rest of his life like i i may i yeah. maybe want that person to like die a horrible death and they're probably not going to um so uh, you know, or even like thinking about justice on a smaller scale of like, you know, somebody who um, like murders somebody and okay, maybe the murderer gets caught and maybe the murderer gets sentenced and maybe like the murderer is 
punished, but like that's not completely justice, right? The people whose whose loved mm-hmm. ones were murdered don't feel like there's no there's no justice there, right? That that they might feel ple- they might feel like you know, there might be something gratifying about knowing that the guilty person is punished, mm-hmm. but that's not really justice in the sense of like something broken made whole or you know the idea that um you know we live in a world where there are rules and where things you know things think the, the guilty are punished and the innocent are 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 saved kind of thing so yeah fiction right. storytelling gives me the way a way of imagining a world where like okay maybe things are terrible but maybe things could be okay and maybe the guilty will be punished and the 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 planet exactly. can be saved and the mass extinctions can be stopped and um you know the 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 far right takeover will be thwarted um all of the things i'm increasingly skeptical about happening in the real world i can <laughs> i can write stories about that happening i mean it's kind of ironic that you're in real life you you have this this attitude i i wouldn't call it like full blown pessimism or anything but like skepticism perhaps um your work very often, I think, as you just mentioned, reflects optimism in in the hopes that you can use fiction, you can use a fictitious framework to uh, propose like an alternate history in the form of uh, Kid Wolf and Kraken Boy, or in Blackfish City, despite the dire circumstances and the climate change that have occurred, uh, the lives of many of the people in that book do improve by the end and there is some sense of like the community is going to come together and even though things might be open-ended what have you that there is a sense we could push towards some sort of a better future regardless of the um overall circumstances around us so i find that to be an interesting uh uh dichotomy you know just the how you view the real world but how you use fiction in in that way to sort of push your your skepticism aside and and question question it at least to use a fictional scenario to provide a little bit more optimism for an otherwise uh shitty world you know yeah i mean i feel like um i read i read camus the plague at an impressionable age um and um it's a great book and there's a lot of really good stuff in there about like well we're doomed and you know this doctor is probably going to die um, this doctor has the power to like ameliorate suffering. Um, this doctor knows mm-hmm. the limitations of of what he can do and and what the consequences might be for himself. And so the question isn't like, you know, am I going to save the world? It's like, can I do the very little that I can? Like, yes, we're all fucked. Exactly. But that's not an excuse. Cynicism is not an excuse for inaction, right? It's mm-hmm. um, it's it's a it's a reason to do what you can, even if like what you can, do, even if you embrace the limitations on what you can do. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, just um, getting into Boys, Beasts, and Men, you know, you've been writing short stories for a really long time. At what point did did this collection come together in your head? Did you decide, I want to put out a collection? And how did that really come together in terms of the sort of, how would you call it? I would say like genre bending sort of uh, style that you that you present. Yeah, I think, I mean, I've always wanted a short story collection. I love short stories and I love short story collections. And I think that the the sort of conventional wisdom in publishing is like short story collections don't do well, they don't sell well. Um, and every couple of years, there's like a, 
Carmen Maria Machado's um, Her Body and Other Parties or like a, a, a short story collection that totally blows that out of the water and exposes that it's bullshit. Yeah. Um, but they're pretty rare. Uh, and so most publishers are very, they, like they don't want to publish them. And um, the idea is that they're kind of like vanity projects for the author. Um, so I didn't really think it would happen. Um, and I, uh, uh, like Tachyon reached out to me and Tachyon said, would you like to do a short story collection? And I was like, oh, I kind of, I kind (laughs) of would. Like I had never really like given myself permission to think through what that would look like because I didn't Mm. think it would happen. Except, except that I wanted there to be a framing narrative. Like I used to think about like, oh, that's such a cool it's such a cool thing that Ray Bradbury does in the illustrated, the manner, illustrated like it's a short story yeah. collection, but like a framing narrative um, that some sort of subsumes them into one master narrative. So I was like, mm. Oh, that's a cool trick. I would love to do that. Um, but I didn't think I would be able to. So yeah. Um, Tachyon reached out and they, they're just fucking amazing. And they're such a great publisher. Um, and I've had such a great experience working with them. And, and then once we started, it really sort of like, fell into place of like what is the over, what are the overarching themes of my work what are the things i keep returning to what are the um stories that i keep sort of like struggling with uh and and how what's the narrative there and so there was sort of like a an overarching narrative that emerged for me of like you know i'm fortunate to be able to like have been really picky these are less than half of the published short stories that i've that i've written uh uh in my mm-hmm. life so i could i could sort of pick the ones that sort of told a story all together about like you know about growing up and you know good people struggling to make their way in a bad world and people sort of like becoming monsters um in ways that are amazing or terrible um so so yeah it it, it fell into place pretty quickly i think once i once i started to think about ooh there's there's like you know i'm not i'm not the kind of writer who um like, like I, I ha, I'm, I'm a writer who has things that I keep thinking about, and I always try to be different. I never want to repeat myself. I always, I always want to change it up some. But then there's still these sort of like core themes that that keep popping up, and so just go with, lean into that, and find out what the narrative they want to tell is. Yeah, I mean, it's like you can never completely be satisfied with your exploration of any one thing. So it's like, how can I find new angles to perhaps make my understanding of this a little bit clearer clearer even if it's just like story by story or book by book or what have you and and i love how that came together and tachyon gave you the opportunity to do this and and so fucking awesome that you used illustrated man as a i knew after reading this collection i was just like yep yep framing story (laughs) that has to be like an illustrated man kind of uh inspiration there um and i thought you pulled it off really well in that sense too but what was it like for you? I'm not sure how many of these stories were were um, published beforehand and how many were brand new for this collection. So the framing narrative is original. And then the last story in the yep. collection is has never been published before. And I actually wrote it in 2008. And I and I and I, oh, and wow. I got it got rejected by no joke, 99 places, um, uh, oh 99 God. literary journals and, and science fiction wow. magazines. And so um yeah i really wanted to see this story in print and i was like this is the perfect capstone to this collection the the perfect sort of like grace note for um the the, what the rising and falling action of the collection has been so what the framing narrative and that story are the two that have never been published before nice i imagine for you is very like 
therapeutic to just be like, fuck all of you. I'm putting the story in there. I love it. And it's like, I thought it ended the collection really, really well. But I'm, I'm curious for you, how was it in terms of going back through stories that you've written before and then kind of tying them together in a thematic way? Uh, not even that all of them share the same genre, as I mentioned before, because there is so much, um, you know, I would say surface level uh, genre wise variety in there. But then once you get into it, it's like the thematic uh, through lines are really, are really strong. So what was it like to, to pick these different stories? And then how did you go about figuring out like, like you mentioned this, having, having this like satisfying kind of arc and then conclusion uh, th through the course of a short story collection. Cause it, I guess it's not as easy to say, I've got this novel and here are the three acts or the five acts or whatever you have, but here are a number of short stories that I have to tie together. What was that process like? Um, you know, it was mostly, it was mostly just fun. It, uh, you know, uh, to me, they all, they're all coherent. And to me, they're all in the same genre, which is Sam is bad at genre. Like, like, yeah, I don't, I, I know that there are many that were published as horror and many that were published as science fiction or fantasy. Mm. And I get that those are real things in the world that people like, you know, but I, I'm very bad at it. And I tend to like be mistaken about what I, what the story I'm writing is genre wise. Um, so to You're me, they a sentence all bender like, and a genre bender. <laughs> exactly. Or a breaker, um, uh, depending on, depending on who you ask, I guess. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, it was no, it was no, there was no struggle there. They all felt really coherent in that sense. Mm. You know, it was funny. I, um, I went, I took a pretty light touch when I was revising them. Some of them, you know, these, these span a long time. So yeah. I'm a different writer than I was when I wrote many of them. And as I was like copy editing them and putting them together, I took a pretty light hand. I didn't want to completely rewrite them. Um, even when there were moments where I was like, eh. Not so great, um, but like, you know, some of them, that, that includes stories that like won awards or were nominated for awards or were widely anthologized. So I didn't want there to be like different, mm -hmm. like dramatically different versions of them kicking around. Um, so yeah. I tried to be pretty faithful to it. But then while I was on tour, I, there were a couple stories that I read because I tried to read different stories um, in each city. So I didn't get bored. And there were a couple ones where I read the story and I'm like, well, that's not great. That, that's that's not how I would write that sentence now. I wish I I wish I had sort of like paid a little more. I, I wish I had read them out loud when I was editing them to sort of realize how clunky some of it is and how how awkward some of the transitions are from scene to scene. So it was nice in that respect to sort of look back and be like, oh, I've gotten better at some aspects of the craft. You know, there's times where I worry mm -hmm. that like, oh, something vital, something vital and powerful in my craft has gone because I'm older and more cynical and jaded and. I'm not as hungry as I used to be. Um, and that's probably true. Um, but it's also, it's nice to know that, in it, that what I, while I have probably lost some things, I have also gained others. So like my, my, mm. my prose and my plot beats and a lot of the mechanics of story feel uh, stronger now. Um, but, but that's just, that's just how they feel. I mean, that's a good me. thing. Know. You know, we were mentioning earlier that by doing Clarion, your uh your perception of what it means to to critique other people's work or be critiqued and that kind of thing actually helps you to improve as a writer and it really helps to be able to look back on your own work and be like shit that could be better and i think that's a really good sign you know and then totally. even if it is uh even if you'd already done like a pass that kind of thing 
there are still some things that you can miss. And it's like, there are constant opportunities to improve as a creative person. And, uh, I'm really curious cause I've, I've, I'm, I'm writing a, I'm writing a novel, but I've never really gotten too much into short stories, but I'm curious from your perspective, what advantages do the short story format have against something like a novel or a novella, just any longer format? Uh, short stories are the funnest. I just really love them. They're, they're like, you know, it's probably problematic. Here's my, here's my, here's my short stories versus um, <laughs> novels uh, analogy, right? A novel is like a monogamous, long-term, um, mutually respectful, very special relationship. Um, and short stories are like, hookups or 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 one night stands or one hour stands right they both they're both wonderful and important and it, you know you can have you can have you can have that all uh in life um but there's something really satisfying about like a quickie like a, just a like a, a dirty like let's do this let's try something wild and weird um and you know you're not married to it you can say goodbye to it when you're done with it um you know uh a lot of times my um if I'm struggling to think through a novel project, I can write a short story that's set in that universe. That's a that's a, a trick I stole from N.K. Jemisin, um, who talks about sometimes nice. writing like uh, using short stories as like a, a a test run for a world or a character or a supernatural ability mm. or something. Um, so yeah, I'm like, oh, this this idea is interesting, but I might not want to. I might not want to marry it. Let me let me take it for a spin. So yeah, short stories are fun. They're quick. They're dirty. You can you can have fun and and be in and out quickly. Um, you know, some people only like one or the other <laughs> as writers and as readers, and some people like both, and some people like one more than the other. But I like I like I like them all mm. pretty pretty equally. I want it. I want it all. Man, I love this analogy. And and you and you said in and out. You just put the cherry on top of that that <laughs> one night stand of an analogy. Beautiful. Yeah, I think that's actually very interesting. I've never heard uh, N.K. Jemison's take on it. And and now that you mention it, it's like that does seem like a very good um, tool just to be able to like flex a character a little bit, see what the world's like, do some shallow world building, see if it's you know uh, if if you can capture you know, anyone's attention, even your own in a short story when it comes to something like world building and character, I think that's probably worth going a little bit further with. Yeah. Totally. And then for you, what was it like transitioning into, I guess your first, is this your first uh, published novella with the uh, kid wolf and Kraken boy? Yeah. Yes, it is. It's my first, it's the first one that I wrote. Um, and mm. oh, the novella, I mean, like I could, I actually like it all. Like there's, there's no writing I've discovered yet that I hate. That's not true. Mm -hmm. I don't like writing essays. But when it comes to fiction, flash, uh, it's all flash fun. fiction. It, yeah, flash fiction I can get down with. But novellas are really fun <laughs> because they are they are they are they're like us. Okay, if we're gonna keep to the relationship uh, analogy, it's like a summer fling or something that's, that's not cool. a one night stand, but that isn't like you know this is gonna be a, a year or more of my life, right? Um, they they give you all the things that a novel give you gives you in terms of like you know. Um, you know the, the 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 changes like you know uh, multiple plot lines changing over time action that isn't just like i did this thing and then it's done um so it's a yeah it's a really fun genre and it's a way to a way to um to play with uh plot 
in a different way. Um, because you want to have good plot beats, but you want to make them you want to make them fast. It's also just like a really yeah. exciting time now because novellas are sort of an awkward length. Um, and there was a long time where novellas were really important to science fiction when like, you know, a lot of the paperback publishers would publish like two novellas in one book, like a, a, a mass market paperback that had two novellas in it. Um, and a lot of the um, uh, pulp, a lot of the pulp magazines and the, the science fiction journals would publish novellas when those were much more widely read than they are now. And they right. sort of fell out of fashion for a really long time because like the technology and the logistics wasn't there. Um, and it's only in the last few years that I think that we're starting to see like Tor and Rebellion, Solaris, um, Neon Hemlock is doing amazing stuff. Like there's cool presses yeah. publishing awesome novellas. Um, and that didn't always be, that wasn't always the case. It was usually like you would write a novella and you have like one shot. Like if, uh, if exactly. Asimov's if if Asimov's doesn't take it, mm, you might be screwed. Um, so it's nice that there's a lot of places out there now, and I think we're, yeah, and, and we're seeing think, that you, in terms of all the great novellas coming out now. Do you think Do you think that has something to do with eBooks and 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 that whole front? I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, many of the places that I mentioned do do really beautiful paperbacks of novellas, but I do think that as more and more people read um, eBooks as like a as like a default thing, it's 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 a pretty easy um, distribution model. Um, yeah, I think I think I think there's you could probably make the case, and I don't I don't do this world, so I don't know. Um, I would imagine that um, novellas are a less efficient use of book sh- bookshelf space. Um, and so mm. they might be less appealing to booksellers because um, they're small. Um, so yeah. who knows? But yes, I do think that less ebook visibility. readers Yeah. 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 Because I mean, for me, like ebooks is, is one of the main reasons that I started reading more. And I think it was Martha Wells' Murderbot series that really kind of kicked off my, my fascination with, uh, with novellas. And, and you mentioned uh, Solaris before at what point did the did the whole uh kid wolf and, and kraken boy thing start because i know Sarlaris has their satellite novella series did they approach you about doing a novella and then how did that all pan out no we pitched to them my agent my agent pitched it to them and, and, they, and nice. they bought it um uh yeah i mean so like the origin story of um kid wolf and kraken boy is actually really is is actually like it's 10 years old now it was actually the one oh, wow. story that I wrote at Clarion that I couldn't sell. Um, and um, it was called Fragments of a... No, it wasn't. Fuck, what was it called? I don't even remember what it was called. Okay, one of two short stories <laughs> at Clarion that I couldn't sell um, after Clarion. Uh, anyway, um, I, wrote a, I wrote a story about a, um, about a world where tattoos give you magical abilities. Um, and uh, it wasn't a very good story. It needed a lot of work. But there's this one, like, two-paragraph um chunk which sort of sets out the rules of the of the magic of like you know the factors that influence the tattoos magic of like the lineage of the artist the the person who's wearing it the subject matter and the context like the day and time and place that it's it's inked mm-hmm. and what it's inked with all that stuff um so those two paragraphs which appear in kid wolf and kraken boy have have survived for 10 years bouncing from project <laughs> to project i wrote like um you know, the, my first novel, The Art of Starving, we sold in a two book deal. And the second book, um, I, I originally wanted it to be about uh, teenage boys um, in love, uh, riding the rails in a sort of like 
mid 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 apocalypse America um, cool. and tattoos give magical abilities, um, and that never mm-hmm. went anywhere. But I did write, I did incorporate that that those paragraphs into the pitch materials that I was developing. Um, it wasn't the direction my editor wanted to go in, and, and I'm glad because that's <laughs> how I got destroy all monsters just behind me somewhere there. Um, so yeah, it's been it's been a long time for those two paragraphs and this and this sort of like world of magical tattoos to to see the light of day. Um, uh, which is which is wild and exciting man that's that's awesome because though after i read that okay so you know i'm sure anyone listening to this interview knows that i used to be a tattoo artist because i mentioned it a bunch of times and it was a very big part of my life for a long time hence all the magic on my arm and all over my body those lines i'm really glad that they that they survived that whole journey because that was for me it was like in the context of the story that came around it as as amazingly cool as this whole like rail hopping adventure in like you know kind of apocalyptic scenario sounds hopefully we get to see that one day because it's a really cool idea but contextually within this story i thought that was really just really powerful very poignant in the sense that you know from my perspective as a tattoo artist i really related to kraken boy and and his journey as a tattoo artist and seeing those lines, you know, context and the relationship between an artist and a, and a, and a, and a client is so powerful. And, and for me, tattooing is such a spiritual experience that I felt you captured it so beautifully there. And lineage is a huge thing too, because there are so many different lineages of tattooing, whether it comes to Japanese or Chinese uh, ink, when it comes to Southeast Asian, Polynesian cultures, you know, even in, in Western cultures where you have traditional and then that blossomed out into a whole shitload of different, uh, different styles and, and lineages, it's a very, very powerful thing. And, and I thought you captured that beautifully. And, you know, for you as someone who has tattoos and, and wrote this story, what do, you fe- what do you feel that infusing tattoos with magic gave to your overall representation of Kraken Boy, Kid Wolf, and the world that they live in and experience in, I believe it's 1920s New York? Yeah. Um, I mean, so first of all, I will say that those paragraphs were written five years before I got my first tattoo. Um, I, I get one tattoo for every book um, uh, that, I, that yeah. I publish. and That's surprising. Um, and so yeah so at that point i had not sold anything so those were those were pretty abstract and they they had to do with um it it had to do with sort of this idea that um just still really important to me like that thinking of tattoos not as a um as like a marker of maturation of like a, a a journey completed a milestone reached an achievement unlocked like something other than like oh i had money and i wanted the thing on my body right um exactly well you know like you know someone who someone who passed away who was important to you whatever like that thinking of tattoos as like ways of externalizing our internal experience of the world um and and yes once i once i did get a tattoo i was like oh no yes this is this is magic this definitely (laughs) this definitely does something um and so uh i i yeah i do i do feel like um uh i 
I mean, I don't think, yeah, tattoos are amazing. That's, that's all, that's all I can say. And I, and I didn't have any when I, when I conceptualized this, but definitely the form that this ultimate story took is, is very shaped by, um, by that experience and that bond, like the bond between your artist and your, like, I, I always get my tattoos from the same artist. Lots of people, I think most people probably get work with more than one artist, um, depending, but, um, yeah, I think there's something really special about thinking about like um, someone who is on a journey as an artist and you are on a journey as an artist and you align uh, and you and you like, you know, I see this guy once a year and he puts ink on my body and I can be like, oh, that's great. You, you know, we both, we both come a long way in the last year kind of thing. Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, I always liken it to the, the book that I'm writing right now. There is a character who is a, a tattoo artist. And so you know, kind of the mentality that goes behind it is like this serendipitous meeting of two souls who come together and engage in a mutual exchange of pain and pleasure. And the result is something that is both parties, you know, it's like the infusion of the artist and their creativity, as well as the infusion and the body and the skin and the biology of the person who's receiving the tattoo and had the idea uh, to you know, have this desire to represent something on their body. So yeah, totally, totally agree. And and I thought you captured it really well, even though you wrote that before you'd even got a tattoo. That surprises me a lot. Just those two, just those two paragraphs. The rest of it is, is post, is mm-hmm. post tattoo. No. Um, but I'm curious actually, because, <laughs> because I think about this a lot, right? Because the tattoo artist is an artist and like, I'm an artist. And so I think a lot about my work out in the world of like, you know, mm-hmm. my words in books and, and on websites and people reading them and discovering them. How is it for you, like, to be an artist whose medium is other people's bodies and therefore, like, you know, um, things that will be seen by only their lovers, for example, or only their family? Or, like, what's it, what's it like being an artist whose work is existing in a world in a way that's just completely, like, physical? uh and and in many cases hidden or secret or partially hidden yeah i mean there's on one hand there's an intimacy an intimacy to it there's this very intense process of uh you know obviously once the design is finished there's an intense process of the actual tattoo being put onto the skin and from my part it's like you you mentioned it in the novella uh that you know, a tattoo artist has to be engaged in multiple, uh, you know, intellectual and, and physical fronts at the same time. It's like, you have to know like the mechanics of your tattoo machine. You also have to understand the biology of the human body, um, and, and the biology of skin and how that works and how the ink and the pigment gets injected into the skin, how deep you go, all this different kind of stuff. So there is this intensity to it and an intimacy because you're, you know, touching someone's body. And this is something that's really bothered me about tattooing for a long time is like this intimacy agreement, you know, the engaging in this has given a lot of really sleazy people, the opportunity to uh, engage in a lot of really shitty, inappropriate behavior. And for me, that was just like, this person gave you an open invitation to touch their body and put something permanent on their skin. and tell their story in a way that for a lot of people is very private. Other people want to show it off, but you know, you kind of like broke a sacred vow from my perspective. It's like, if you're entering into someone's intimate space, 
then you kind of fuck that up by making it sleazy and 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 gross and and that kind of stuff. And sometimes it even goes like even worse than that. But on the other hand, it's like there's this duality of both magic and and burden where there's a magic in being able to put something permanent on someone's skin, but it's a burden to put it onto their skin permanently. <laughs> so sure. for me, that 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 meant that there was a, a lot of forethought going into it in terms of the design process. I never designed anything that was a copy of someone else's work. I never tattooed anything twice unless it was two or more people getting a tattoo as a group. So every single design was unique. Every single design was meant for that specific person, unless they chose a flash design, um, in which case they attributed their own uh, connection to that that artwork. But I did everything possible on my front to make sure that this design is something that I can do in terms of my technical capability and artistic ability. And then once I put it on your skin, I want it to be as unique as possible by not giving it to other people. And so you can do with it what you want after that point. And I'm really happy that you have that healed well and you're excited about it. You can show it off or you can keep it private, but that's kind of part of the journey. It's like, at that point, my work is done. You have to heal it. You have to take care of it in the long run. You can show it off however you like. You can, you know, keep it hidden however you like. But yeah, it's this really weird duality between beauty and and burden, I think. (laughs) And it's kind of uh, stressful in a lot of ways. and and you know, I think it under it's underestimated how much like mental health there is in the tattoo industry, uh, especially with social yeah, media sure. being such a big part of it. That fucked sure. them. That fucked my head more than anything. <laughs> I think. I bet. Yeah. So it was uh it was cool for me to read this this novella and and feel that connection to the character and knowing that you have tattoos and and being able to read so many things where you're just like you got that spot on and. Although you did use gun too many times. People in the tattoo industry, a lot of the time, they're just like, I fucking hate when people call it guns. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't really I don't really care. Good note. But I have I have heard that multiple times. And I'm just like, why do you care so much about it? It's like that's my tool. Huh. I'm like, okay, well, yeah. <laughs> huh. Interesting. I wonder, I wonder how that looks historically. Like I wonder, like I feel like I was writing about a period mm. in which like electronic like the the electric tattoo um machine was very new um and i wonder if artists would have would have thought differently about it then like maybe 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 it was cool maybe it was cool that it was a gun i don't know i'm gonna i'm gonna i'll I'll take a note and yeah i think i think because it's like interwar period between world war one and world war two there probably would be an association between you know here's this like mechanical device in a world where mechanical devices are being invented all the time and it has a really aggressive sound uh and especially older machines it's like they sound you know fucking choppy like a like a old cars compared to new cars today it's like really aggressive in comparison so i think maybe the association would be there but that's not something in terms of tattoo history that that i've i've really encountered but i'm curious like for you in terms of you know the tattooing history of like 1920s New York, but also, you know, just checking out the acknowledgements, you uh, referenced a bunch of like books that you've read also like in terms of boxing, uh, which is something that your dad was into and, and reading books about boxing, but also queer history of New York and 
that kind of thing. What was your approach to research like for this novella? I mean, I tend to approach research with a very light touch because I get way too into it. I'll be like, oh, I'm so fascinated by this subject that I'm that I'm researching <laughs> that then the story sounds like a Wikipedia entry because I want to put in all the facts because yeah. I'm so fascinated by them. So I often go in mm. pretty, pretty loose. And, and often what I'm going for is just like vibe. Like what's the what was it? What does it feel like? What what are the details that are going to yeah. help me convey that feeling? Um, and so, yeah, there was a lot I was I was able to like I did a lot of research. I, I learned a lot. I tried to put as much of that as I could on the page without getting boring. Um, I didn't like I, I learned a lot, I think, um, and, and not a lot of things, some things that didn't make it onto the page. Right. Like so one of the interesting learnings was mm -hmm. just thinking about the way that like queer identity has changed over time and how like, you know, um, that that um, while there have always been queer people, like the idea of like queer as like a identity didn't really look the same. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there was like it was it was it, like it was in many ways, especially and there's a lot of good scholarship about this that I won't that I that, I, that I'll botch and that I tried to reference in the in the acknowledgments. But that like while it was pretty widespread, actually, that a lot of like, you know, uh, working class men engaged in sexual activity with other with other men and mm -hmm. other other class men as well um but that it, that it was really common especially in like places like boxing gyms there was there's actually like really interesting scholarship about like you know interviews at the time with like people about their sex lives that included a lot of stuff of like hooking up with men um in the in the teens and 20s um but that didn't like but that that was not the same thing as like fairies like you know oh i'm not you know like what what right. the sex that one might have does not determine who you are and how you think about yourself um and so that many men who were like married to women or would or had girlfriends or whatever so um yeah it was it was interesting i learned a lot a lot of it didn't make it into the onto the page um but uh it was it it was really interesting and fun especially thinking about like thinking about Jewish history and as a Jewish person yeah. um, thinking about like, uh, you know, a sort of point before, before assimilation, right. Before it was like, you know, like, so there's this, there's this thing that happens over the course of, of, of history um, where like who is white changes over time. Right. And that, um, you know, many people who today um, are, you know, are sort of like blind, like, subsumed under the cloak of white privilege like people who are italian people who are irish mm. people who are jewish were not considered white in 1900 right or that many people yeah. would not have considered them that and that many of the the sort of like white supremacist um forces w were just as anti-roman catholic irish people as they were against you know uh against african americans um so thinking about that as like a point in history when like things could have gone differently and when like you know, I feel like for, for looking at Jewish history in America, I think a lot of it is really focused on assimilation, on trying to be like everybody else, on trying to erase all emblems of difference, um, trying to like, trying really hard to prove that we deserve human rights by being just yeah. like everybody else, as opposed to like, um, you know, really like standing strongly in who we are and, and, and defying the, the, the system that denies us human rights and respect. Um, so this was, it was interesting for me to think about like, what if like a different path had been taken? That was sort of like the, the seed of what ultimately becomes sort of an alternate history in Kid Wolf and Crack and Boys thinking about like, you know, what if, what if we had chosen differently? Mm -hmm. 
It's, yeah, I mean, it is very interesting that you were able to take various facets of your own identity and your own family history and infuse them into this exploration of what would happen if I if I engaged New York in, in the 1920s from the angle of boxing and tattooing and queer identity and Jewish identity and all those different things. And as I mentioned earlier, as we spoke about to uh, sort of engage with the with the reality of this world that we call home and and present something and you know have a conversation with it and and try and present some kind of optimistic alternative and and you know it's funny just like in in boys beasts and men and in in uh kid wolf and kraken boy how there is so much you know optimism and you know even if things are left open-ended um in a lot of cases there's just so much room for uh more positive exploration and and hopefully that's the kind of thing that you know from your perspective as a writer you give these narratives to readers and they can finish a book and hopefully be satisfied but satisfied to the point where they're like i'm going to think more about this and i'm going to think more about this in relation to my own life and my own identity and and experiences and you know trickle effect of of positivity going out into the world yeah yes that that's what i'm doing <laughs> that's what I'm, that's what i'm trying for i might be mis- old and miserable and bitter but um that doesn't mean everyone needs to be and um yes. i want i want to tell stories that make people think oh we're not completely fucked yeah yeah even though it's like in some some days you might wake up and be like we're fucked you read Sam you know, every day and you think okay yeah <laughs> every day every day i think oh, that Sam. but also i want poor, i want to tell Sam. stories when I'm just looking at things where things end a little bit more optimistically. Yeah. (laughs) You got to park outside, man. You're okay. You're doing okay. And uh, so (laughs) just to, uh, you know, get back to tattoos for for a second. uh, What are, so what are the tattoos that you got in relation to releasing books and, and, and uh, what are they? So every, every one of my tattoos is an animal from the book that it is commemorating. Um, so, um, I got a, a killer whale, um, for Blackfish City, um, Destroy All Monsters has, uh, and the main character has an Allosaurus pet. So I got an Allosaurus mm-hmm. tattoo. Boys, Beasts, and Men has a, um, short story about King Kong. So I have a King Kong tattoo. Um, uh, my agent, uh, uh, I recently sent him the draft of a new novel and he was like, you know, Sam, I can tell when you're putting an animal into your book because you want to get a tattoo of it. And I was like, yes, <laughs> yes, you can. Um, so yes, uh, very, very much um, a, an animal from each book um, that, that uh, I love animals. I want, I want lots of animals uh, all over me. I want, I want to, I want to tap into their awesomeness. Um, so yeah. And infuse your body with their magic. I really, I really exactly. like that that you have so much meaning behind them, and especially that they're connected to to your books. Are you gonna get one for for Kraken or sorry, Kid Wolf and Kraken Boy? Are you gonna get a big Kraken you know, on your chest? I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I really, I really thought about it a lot. Um, uh, I don't. I don't think you know because the original rule was like one tattoo for every novel. Um, 
but then like short story collection because like you know i could get one for like i love tattoos i would get one yeah. every day if i could uh and i would be out of space <laughs> really quickly um but uh uh, so yeah, I had to draw the line somewhere. I felt like short okay. story collection was a fitting creative milestone to commemorate, mm-hmm. but novella didn't feel like it was quite at that level. So nothing, nothing for that for this Ooh. book. Um, not uh, not the summer but, fling. It's not good enough, man. No, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it would be cool to see you with a giant crack in chest piece, or at least like you could get an octopus somewhere. But I, I understand. Well, so the problem. The problem, Adrian, is that I'm very vain and I love my tattoos and I want people to see them. Um, but also, I'm very self-conscious, and so I don't take my shirt off very often, and I almost never wear shorts. <laughs> um, so, really, the only real estate that like is allowed that that, that works for me is my arms because I'm not going to get I'm not going to get a neck tattoo. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, so yeah, uh, I'm running out of space. Uh, my there's only so much arm that I have. Also, my mother-in-law. Yeah. Um, makes fun of them. Um, so uh, <laughs> she doesn't hate them, but she doesn't love them. Uh, so I can't, I don't want to get them like too far down my arm. This is sort of like the cutoff here. So right. that I can like wear long, longer sleeves at the family gatherings. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah. Uh, so, so not my chest. I think, I think my, I'm going to have to go to my legs next and then just like mm. get comfortable wearing shorts. Um, yeah, man. Because I like I don't want to, like, I could get a bunch on my back, but no one's ever going to see them. So, no. I want, I want but the, but that's them. part of what we were talking about earlier. I mean, first of all, props to your mother-in-law for making fun of you as opposed to just, like, judging you silently or, like, talking yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah. I like it. Yeah. I like it when people make fun of my tattoos. I'm just like, good, we can have a conversation about this. Let's yes, go. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but... I think that kind of ties back into what we we're what, what I was saying about the my perspective as like a tattoo artist. It's like, you know, I guess it's like you determine your own level of privacy when it comes to your tattoos. And if you're the kind of person that wants to show off your tattoos, then maybe it's like, yeah, you get them in places where they're a little bit more visible and, you know, just like fucking throw out your jeans and go get a pair of shorts. man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm getting there. I'm working on it. I'm a work in progress slowly slowly it's all good we're all works in progress sam it's all good Indeed. <laughs> all right man well um just to uh, close out i mean i really appreciate you chatting with me but uh what does the future hold for you as a writer you know now that you've got these two uh books out uh, I, I think you mentioned back in september when we were doing the climate change panel that you were doing uh you're working on something to do with like a flooded new york um, I, I did work on like a, a sort of like climate change e novel um, that that was sort of like a midpoint between here, but the moment that we're in now and the moment of Blackfish City, the sort of like mid yeah. mid devastation um, as opposed to post devastation. Um, and I'm not yeah. really uh, that one's sort of like on the back burner for now. Right now, I'm working on a, like a far future noir thriller about a rent boy framed for murder in outer space. Um, uh, trying to expose the the conspiracy uh, and the bounty hunter who's trying to capture him, uh, who is starting to have cool. doubts about his guilt. Um, so yeah, it's fun and sexy and wild and and dark and thriller y. So that's that's what I'm working on now. That, oof, that sounds fucking amazing. I'm 100 percent on board Thank you. for that. <laughs> Thank you. However it pans out, and if you get back to the flooded New York one, I'd be down to read that as well. So I hope I hope that happens. And uh, just to finish off, you know, what are you currently 
reading, watching, listening to that you'd like to share with uh, viewers and listeners? Um, so I'm halfway through season four of Stranger Things. Um, you know, I, I really loved the show for a while. I still like it um, and I'm still enjoying it. I'm not, not quite feeling the spark of like overwhelmed excitement that I did initially. Um, and also it kind of feels yeah. like a story that like is being told indefinitely as opposed to a story that's like mm. building towards a conclusion. Um, right. So I can't, I'm not wild about it. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. I love those characters, but it's not, it's not killing me the way I want. Um, Sorrowland by River Solomon um, is a book I recently finished that, that blew me away. Um, so I highly recommend that. Uh, and um, Summer Suns by Lee Mandelo is great. Uh, great queer horror uh and uh poppy z bright is uh i'm digging digging deep into sort of like the 80s 90s queer horror um icons so poppy z bright is uh, a little a little retrospective i'm taking right now i don't listen to podcasts very often so i don't have any good podcast recommendations if that's what you mean music wise music um Mm -hmm. music wise i am been listening to a lot of jazz. I, I'm, only, I'm a very late arrival at jazz. It was something I resisted for a really long time, um, but I'm really loving. Mm-hmm. Like I've, I've, I've become a full-on um, John Coltrane convert. So that's that's quite special. Yeah. Um, Santi Gold. <laughs> Santi Gold is my favorite. My favorite new artist. Uh, her album "Master of My Make Believe" is, I think, the best thing of the past 15 years. Um, yeah, really so good. she has a new album out, which I haven't heard yet, but I love. I love Santi Gold, so I'm excited to check that out. Oh, and uh, the Linda Lindas. I just saw I saw Bikini Kill while I was on tour. Bikini Kill is one of like a really special band to me, um, and they were amazing. But the mm-hmm. Linda Lindas opened up for them, and they're really really fun, um, really young. Like the drummer's 11. Like I think the oldest person in the band is what? 16. Um, these like teenage girls wow. who are fucking amazing. Um, so uh, <laughs> they just put out an album, the Linda Lindas. I highly recommend. Oh, I need to check that out. That sounds fantastic. And uh, Sam, yeah, once again, thanks for thanks for chatting with me, taking the time today. Uh, it's always a pleasure. I'm really happy to chat with you. Um, yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate it. It's great to chat with you too. And if you could just let uh, listeners and viewers know where they can find you on social media. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm on Twitter at SentenceBender. I'm on Instagram at uh, sam.j.miller. Uh, and my website is mm-hmm. samjmiller.com. Awesome. Fantastic. And yeah, new books, Boys, Beasts, and Men, short story collection, and the novella Kid Wolf and Kraken Boy are out. So those are both really, really awesome. And yeah, I hadn't heard of the Solaris satellite, so I'm going to go check out the other stuff that they've got going. Sounds like a very interesting uh, project that they're doing. They do good work. Thank you again, Sam. I appreciate it. Thanks, Adrian. Take care. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Sam J. Miller. If you like this episode, please subscribe, rate and review us on your platform of choice, and share us with your friends. It helps a lot and we greatly appreciate it. You can follow SFF Addicts on Twitter or Instagram at SFF Addicts Pod for updates and more, or shoot us an email at sffaddictspod at gmail.com. You can also follow me, Adrian M. Gibson, on Twitter or Instagram at Adrian M. Gibson.
SFF Addicts is part of FanFiAddict.com. So make sure to check us out there for the latest in book reviews, essays, and all things sci-fi and fantasy, as well as the full episode archive for the podcast. All music comes courtesy of the talented Astronauts. Check them out on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash S-T-R-O-N-O-Z. All links for the episode are also available in the show notes. Now, keep reading, keep imagining, and we'll see you next time on SFF Addicts. <laughs>